open up to Hebrews 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, if you'll stand and get there. We're going to cover more verses in this, but we'll pick up in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, even though our eyes can be so dim, yet in many respects we confess we see the day approaching. We see things unraveling in society around us. We see what's happening within the ranks of so-called Christianity. We see the coldness that often resides in our own hearts. Father, help us to hear thy word as our King, our God, the lover of our soul. Father, we thank you for thy eternal patience. But truly, we can't even comprehend, even today, what patience you've shown us. Lord, we can't comprehend how infinitely and with what joy and expectancy you long to bless us even now, today. What real spiritual meat and drink awaits if we will but open our mind to your searching, your precious word. Pray, Lord, you'd keep the forces of wickedness out of this building and out of these hearts. Pray, God, even today, you would show yourself mighty. You give us a fresh view of Christ. Father, thank you for his blood that was shed. Thank you for the privilege of being called your servants, your children, your people. Help, Lord, as your word is preached today. Amen. Well, I think God has made the most important parts of the Scripture 
available, those seeking salvation, for instance, can find fairly simple terminology on that topic. Passages like John 3.16, most of the most ranked pagans in our culture could quote you that verse. The tragedy more aren't willing to actually listen to what it says. There are indeed portions of the scriptures that fit in the category of strong meat. I would say the book of Hebrews fits into that category. This is the high-protein diet of the spiritual life, at least one of those places. There's a lot of opinion on who wrote this epistle. I guess I would be of the opinion it was Paul, but he doesn't identify himself for one reason or another. But if it was, then this definitely fits into what Peter said of Paul's writings, that he wrote some things hard to be understood. There are some deep mysteries here that, by the way, are worth searching out. This morning we're not going to go in-depth, verse by verse. We're going to kind of touch the tops of some of the waves as we go by, picking up in verse 11. But as we prepare our hearts to partake of these communion elements, we're going to center in on these three key statements in verses 22 to 24. You can see them there. They all three begin with the words, let us. We'll say more about that in a moment. But there's three actions that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us as a result of a proper understanding of what the blood of Christ has done and is still doing. I mean, I've said this again and again. I'll keep saying it. Doctrine is not merely answering questions properly. It's not like some spiritual SAT test that now I know it and I passed and I got a good grade and my report card says so. And doctrine is intended to produce worship Stability, productivity, action, fruitfulness. I've always been fascinated with plants. I walk into these places like the orthopedic here in town, which we've been to a lot, and they have a large plant in their entryway. And I walk by these plants inside buildings in the big pots, and I always grab the leaves. Do you know why? I want to know, is that actual living cells, or is that cloth and plastic? Personally, I'm not impressed with cloth and plastic. But say you've got one of these plants that's cloth and plastic, and you make a comment. But every time I come in here, the thing hasn't grown more. And says, oh, but we've thrown miracle growing that pot every week for the last four years. That's why that's the most fertilized soil this side of the Mississippi. And you say, well, it might be, but apparently the tree is not able to receive it. We are not designed to be fertile soil without growth. And if that's what doctrinal truth becomes, we're missing the boat somehow. And of course, stability, right action are not possible without right teaching. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Now the last thing the Lord wants us to do on a communion Sunday is to turn them into some stale formality. Can I be candid? That's one of the big struggles as a pastor. The Bible doesn't specify frequency. I think there's a good evidence the early church did this every week. The Bible never commands that. Should it be once a month? 
It needs to be often enough that there is ongoing heart searching, but it can't be so frequent that it turns into mere ritual. Can you imagine what an insult it would be or is to the Son of God dwelling in the heavens right now? That He can see His people sometimes partaking of these things that remind them of His flesh and His blood which is shed for our sake. And we have no more than a passing interest. Oh, I pray God doesn't let that happen here. But it can. It's not merely remembering some duty. Not merely a historical event. He doesn't say do this in remembrance of a Roman cross, although that's part of it. He says do this in remembrance of not it, not them, me, in remembrance of me. This ought to be a season of real soul searching in the light of the approaching day of accountability, in the light of the opportunities just passing by one after another that we'll never have back. I'll do a lot of things in heaven. But one thing you'll never do there is hold the fort because He's coming. You'll never have the privilege to stand for truth in a world dead set against God again. You'll never have the chance to fight against a corrupt enemy known as the flesh within. You'll never have that chance beyond this life to glorify your King in that way. It's going to be gone. It's a time to ask ourselves what practical bearing the blood of Christ has, not just on our position, that's important. Our standing is important. But our practice. What does the blood of Jesus have to do with my life when I get up in the morning? Now the background of this particular text is really part of a long discussion we're not going to get into just now. But it goes back to chapter 7 concerning the superiority of the priesthood of Christ and the insufficiency of the law of Moses to take away sin forever. Of course, we see in chapter verses 11-13, through 13, there's basically two kinds of priests if you boil it down to their raw elements. And what is a priest? Someone says, well, someone who stands between God and man. He's a mediator of some sort. Webster and his well-known 1828 dictionary says it's a man who officiates in sacred offices. That's a good definition. One who assists in bringing men to God. Of course, uh, many that claim the title priest are not bringing men to God at all. We recognize that. And the Word of God, as you go through it, there's only four priesthoods that are legitimate. The rest are not. One is the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's a shadowy figure who shows up in the early chapters of Genesis. There's a lot that could be said on him. The Hebrews talks about that also. There's the priesthood of Aaron or the Levitic tribe. There's the priesthood of Christ. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are called a priest. Those are the only legitimate priesthoods recognized by the Word of God. Now we're only dealing with two of those here. Now look at the Old Testament priest. 
Verse 11, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So his position, what's he doing? He's standing and he's standing daily. There's always more to be done. It's a posture. What does it mean when you're standing like that? You're denoting ongoing labor. There's more that needs to happen. It's interesting if you go through the temple furniture, one obvious uh, thing missing was a chair. There's no place to sit. That was a picture of the fact the work wasn't done. But then there was the repetition. He's offering the same sacrifices. You imagine looking at so many lambs that you can start to tell them all apart? How many would it take for you to get tired of looking at blood and animal guts that people are bringing? Really? How many? How many days of this constant ritual dividing up these animals, eating some, burning some, throwing some outside the camp, and on and on it went. How long until that got old? And what was the result? It can never take away sins. Imagine the priests were sometimes overwhelmed at the task at hand. There was an inability to atone. It was never-ending. And somehow, you'd think the most spiritually astute among the priests would know this begs a final sacrifice to come. This has to be pointing to something. It never stops. In fact, as the population grows, the sacrifices grow. It's not going away. But this man, Christ, Interestingly enough, it's the same title the lost Jews call him today. Talk to a lost Jew, he's going to refer to Christ as this man. But this man! How, how important is it that he's man? If he's God only, how could he ever fulfill the law and live victoriously in human flesh? How could he become our kinsman redeemer? How could he fulfill prophecy? How could He bear our infirmities and shed His blood and die? And if He was man only, how could He really display the love of God come down into human form? How could He ever bear the awful load of eternal condemnation and risen again? He couldn't have. Now what did He do? With one sacrifice for sins, He took care of the problem forever. Verse 14, by one offering... He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now notice, you go back to verse 4, what does it say? It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Well, how come? You don't have to think too hard about that answer. Is an ignorant beast a good substitution for a man? Ultimately? I mean, when a lamb died, could that lamb really be called innocent in the fullest sense? Did that lamb have real moral ability? Even if it could be called innocent, which it was, in a sense, it couldn't be called righteous. Did that lamb fulfill the demands of the law? You see, it's not just the sin problem had to be taken away. You and I had to be given a righteousness, not our own. 
It wasn't just take away the negative. We had to be given a positive righteousness to be worthy to enter God's presence. And even if a lamb could do that, how could it do so eternally? And for all mankind. Well, obviously God had to step down and do another tabernacle. Not a tabernacle of dyed badger skins and wood covered with gold. Sockets and rings, lavers and pieces of furniture, acacia wood, but a tabernacle of flesh. And of course, the life of that flesh being the blood. So that with one offering, the recipients would be made complete for good. It was the last blood that God would ever need to atone for sin. That, by the way, is why we so strenuously reject any system of priestcraft or anything else that constantly presents Christ as nailed to a cross or being re-sacrificed every week. Basically, what is that saying? It wasn't one offering that perfected forever them that are sanctified. It has to be redone and redone and redone. Listen, the Old Testament sacrifices had to be redone, yes, because men were sinners, but also because the sacrifices themselves were not ultimately sufficient. Mankind's nature fundamentally hasn't changed, has it? But the difference is a sacrifice came that was sufficient, that did meet the demands of the law, that did give a positive righteousness, that did take God's condemnation, that could rise up and say it is finished. And by the way, the language there is something, for by one offering he hath perfected forever. That's past tense. That's talking about your standing. It's hard to understand. Yes, when you came to Christ, your sins were taken away. But in the mind of God, He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, when Jesus shed that blood on the cross, it was there that your sins were taken, even though you didn't even exist yet. What an astounding thing that He saw us that way. But if you notice the language, it says, with one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, sanctified could come across as different tenses, but in the Greek, it's actually present tense. So here's what it's saying. With one offering, He has perfected forever, past tense, them that are in the process of being set apart or sanctified in their practical life. So you see, position and practice are both there in that one statement. As you're progressing... In the knowledge of God, as you're progressing in Christian growth, positionally, you already stand complete in Him. That's the biblical motivation, by the way, for seeking Him. Because of what He has made you. Not because of what you're trying to impress Him with. What's His position as priest? He sat down. Well, Levitical priesthood didn't do that. This priest sure did. It shows that it is finished. Salvation's labor, its work, its need is accomplished. And what's his expectation? Till his enemies become his footstool. He's waiting for the day when all unrepentant creatures are turned into one collective doormat for King Jesus to enter into his kingdom. 
and read about it partly in Revelation 19. It's a brutal picture of this painting. That's part of the fulfillment of that. Well, what do other priests expect today? Somebody's in a system that denies that he's uh, perfected forever them that are sanctified. What do those priests have to look forward to? Their own death? Their own demise? A growing line of would-be worshippers standing outside the door to tinker with their soul and try to scrub the spots off a leopard and change the skin of the Ethiopian? To try to affect internal change with external means? You talk about a discouraging place to be. I don't know how they keep their sanity. It's a never-ending reminder that mankind is a sinner and that they cannot change him. Do you know how glad I am to announce this morning two things? Number one is that you need a change that you can't bring. And number two, you need a change that I can't bring. It's a joy to stand here and to be a signpost. I can't really help you if you're not willing to hear what God says. I'm not a priest in that sense. But thank God He is willing to help those who want to be helped. Our high priest is sitting with regards to salvation. The work is complete. And then verse 16, you see the two covenants contrasted. He references Jeremiah 31. In verse 16, this is the covenant that I'll make with him after those days. What days? Well, the days when the Jews reach the end of themselves, when they're done trusting in their pedigree to be right with God. The days when the times of the Gentiles has come to an end, when God's timetable for earth as we know it in this present age is over. When Christ's current bodily absence from this planet gives way to His bodily visible presence on the streets of Jerusalem once again this time for good. So the primary fulfillment of that new covenant is Israel at Christ's second coming, when all remaining Jews are converted in a day. But applications being made here to New Testament Gentile Christians in the here and now. He says this covenant is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, which they break. We discussed this earlier on in Romans. When we say the covenant, the old covenant was faultless or had fault, what does that mean? Did God give a faulty system? No. The problem with the law is not that it wasn't righteous or holy or just or good. The problem with the law is that mankind could not keep it. You see, the fault was with man. So God gave that as preparation. The law of Moses could never give life because of that. It was a shadow while Christ is a substance. It was preparation while Christ is a fulfillment. It was condemnation while Christ gives salvation and enabling. It was a yoke of bondage while Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light. The law reminded of sin. Christ takes away sin. The law was insufficient because of human weakness. Christ is more than sufficient because of God's greatness. What are the blessings of the new covenant? Verse 16, the new nature. I will put my laws into their hearts. God implants a desire to please Him. 
that death that occurred in the garden where Adam was cut off, if you are a Christian, has been reversed. A new moral compass has been truly restored, which, by the way, is one of the great evidences somebody does belong to Christ. When was the last time you stopped and thanked God for the blessing of a new nature? That even in a world so corrupt, even with a satanic system so seductive, even with an inward flesh so corrupt, that God implanted life in you. You woke up out of your dungeon of death. Follow him. And it's not just that he took sin away. Do you know what a blessing it is to actually have a desire to please God? Tell me, did you give that to yourself? No. No. How about the actual continual presence of the Holy Spirit? Tell me, are you really convinced? If you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And He is never leaving. Do you really believe that this morning? Or are you inwardly doubting God and thinking every time you fail, He's backing away toward the east like He did in the book of Ezekiel. You can grieve him. Some of you remember the intertestamental period story of Antiochus Epiphanes. When he goes into the Jewish temple and he offered a pig on the altar. Oh, the Shekinah glory cloud of God was far distant by that point. The Holy Spirit indwells you if you belong to Christ. You bring sin into your life and you leave it. It's like putting swine's flesh on the altar right in front of the face of God. You can quench him, you can grieve him, but you can't drive him away. What is it that makes you so miserable when you know you're wrong? What is it that makes some of you sit during the preaching of the Word sometimes and squirm like you're sitting on a hot pad? I'm not being unkind. You see interesting things from up here. What does that? It's the Spirit of God living in you. It's the Spirit of God taking truth and saying, this is the way, walk in it. So walk in it. So, new nature. The presence of the Holy Ghost. How about complete and total forgiveness? Not mere remission, which was the Old Testament concept. They didn't understand all that was happening. Yes, David wrote about sins being taken away, but they didn't understand the final picture. It was sort of a delay temporarily in Old Testament times looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. But you and I can look back and we can see the whole picture. Your sins and iniquities, he says, I will remember no more. And by the way, that's not a character flaw of forgetting. Whoops, forgot that one. It's a choosing not to remember because the sentence has been carried out to the fullest. It's God effectively saying, because my justice has been satisfied, when I look at your iniquity judicially, there's nothing to remember. Slate's clean. Before God is a judge. 
And of course, there's no more offering needed. Verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. I fear it's a constant tendency in the Lord's people to go back to penance. I failed this week and I still got a probationary period. I spend three days feeling guilty. Then maybe God will forgive me. You didn't get that from the Scriptures. See, here's what you're saying. You're not trying to say it, but here's what you're saying. By one offering, He almost perfected forever them that are sanctified. And now my guilt is going to fill in the gap. And by showing Him how sorry I am, and by paying a penalty of feeling guilty for four, five, six, seven days, I'm going to bend God into accepting me back. No. That's the glory of the verses we all know so well, but sometimes forget. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins now and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because the penalty has been paid. No more offering needed. Now there's two reasons for a response on our part. Verses 19 to 21. Look at number uh, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness... Reason number one we ought to respond is we have boldness. Now, Bible boldness is not brazen gusto. Hopefully you know that already. It's not grit your teeth, just do it along with Nike. It's not arrogance. The word actually means to freely speak. It means complete openness. And one of the primary meanings is actually freedom of speech, properly understood. Now, uh, having, it says, you have it. You have boldness. This is talking about something through the blood of Christ that you possess. You may not feel it, but you have it. Now think of this. Let's say you were raised in some oppressive regime. Let's say you came from North Korea your whole life. You move over here when you're 40. And you become an American citizen. And uh, still, three, four, five years later, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, uh, what's your opinion on these political issues? You won't talk. Someone says, Now, how come you won't answer? I can't say anything. I'll be thrown in prison. You say, Well, no, you won't. You have freedom of speech here. And says, Well, I don't feel very free. You don't understand where I came from. And he says, I don't care where you came from or how you feel. I'm telling you what you possess. You as a Christian, if you are one, have been given the right by the God of heaven to freely speak openly to Him about everything. To open up the floodgates and let it out. Some of the reasons some of you are plagued by things constantly. Because you won't let it out. You see, inwardly there's a fear. God's going to cast me off for it. I can't tell Him that. How come? Will He be surprised? Has He not accepted you? The idea is complete openness with the God of heaven, acceptance as a beloved child. And of course, that's by or because of the blood of Jesus. How's that way been opened to you? Say the priest in the Old Testament? I'm not sure how they opened the veil when he walked through it once a year. I don't know. Did they have drawstrings? Did he push it aside and walk through? I'm not sure. 
But he had that access once a year by shoving through a thick piece of cloth that was hanging there in front of him. But the Lord is telling us we have access to God not because of the tearing of a piece of cloth which did happen, which did happen when Christ died. It wasn't a dead curtain that was rent. Ultimately, it wasn't man-made fabric fibers that were torn to bring our deliverance. It was the death of Christ. That was the veil that was torn. He was torn. He was bruised. He was crushed. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even sitting at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now that brings us to our next reason. We have boldness given, yes. Number two, we have a high priest. We have continual representation before God the Father, and one whose scars of love are always visible, who's always on praying grounds with his Father, who as a man was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, as God is able to secure us and to keep all that He's promised, as a lamb laid down His life for us and fulfilled the law, as a shepherd will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, and as a lion will defend us against all spiritual enemies, make us more than conquerors, and take the scepter of world dominion someday soon. That's our high priest. Now remembering the boldness that we've been given, remembering our high priest at the right hand of God the Father, that brings us to verses 22-24. through 24. There's three proper responses to this truth. Actions on our part. The technical term for these is... Oratory subjunctive, that's a 50-cent term for basically a rallying cry to get us to do something. Uh, usually, you see these translated in our English Bibles as let us. Let us. In other words, it's this motivational statement, let's actually do something about what we just heard. That could be something negative. Here's a group of men, they're sitting in a high-rise building. They're on the top floor. The smoke starts coming by, coming from below. But somebody breaks in and says, hey, the building's on fire. They say, well, now how about that? Boy, look at that smoke. And they sit down and they start to discuss the, the physics and the science behind fire. The development of its usage in human history. They look out the window. They start critiquing the fire trucks and the way they're handling the fire. And then somebody, the light bulb goes on. He says, hey, fellas. Let us get out of the building so we don't burn. Good idea. It could be something positive. Here's a group of prospectors. They're digging around. They come in a last chance gulch. They turn over a shovel blade and they see gold staring at them. I don't think it takes a genius to look at that and say, hey, fellas, let us stake a claim, get some supplies, not tell anybody, and get back here now, right? But that's the mood here with these things that have been laid before us. This vein of gold the Lord's turned over and said, here it is. Now He's saying, do something about it. Do what? Number one, 
Verse 22, let us draw near. It may help you sometime. It's just a suggestion. Look at a picture or read the description of the, the tabernacle or the temple. And in your mind, go through the gates, go past the brazen altar, past the laver, up the steps, into the holy place. Look at the furniture in there, the menorah candle, the table of showbread. And then press on through that final veil into where the Shekinah glory cloud is. See, among the Jews, one man was allowed once a year. Among the Christians, every single one is allowed every single day. In other words, he's saying, draw near, stop hiding outside the holy place in fear and trepidation. Stop treating God like He hasn't opened the way for you to enter. What more could He do? He's been promising redemption from sin since the early days of mankind on this planet. Since right after the fall. He's given the laws, preparation, types and shadows abounding everywhere. We see Christ in every page of the Old Testament. And then the fullness of time comes. Here comes God in human flesh. He preached, He taught, He lived, He was an example, He was a sacrifice, and He died and He rose again. He's ascended to heaven. He's given you a book full of promises. He's given you His Holy Spirit in His heart, in your heart. He's promised to give you everything needed for life and godliness here. And now, what more could He do? And what a wonder we're given an audience not with some God-hating group of celebrities, but with the one who made the heavens. But listen, how much we value that invitation is shown by what we do with it. If you got a letter tomorrow saying the President of the United States wanted you over for lunch, it was in his handwriting. Regardless of your views of the President, it would probably be on your mind. Why would he want to eat with me? What, like, what am I going to wear? How am I, how am I going to prepare? What am I going to say? There'd be an element of fear, intimidation, but you've been given an invitation far more glorious than that. With one who's far more fearful but also loves your soul with a holy and everlasting tender love. You say, well, if I went in before a powerful king, I'd, I'd prepare myself. Well, that's good. It's good to be properly groomed. Joseph, before he went before Pharaoh, he cleaned himself up. It's a good idea. There's four ways here to be spiritually groomed as we come before the king. He says, draw near. How? With the true heart. He's not talking about flawless. Once again, if you're waiting for your motivations to be 100% perfect, you're going to wait until you die. I'm not justifying wrong motivations. I'm saying you can't let the presence of the sin nature beating on you stop you from drawing near. Here's someone cowering in fear outside saying, well, I, I can get it to 97%, but that other three, go in! 
not because you've earned the right, but because it's been given to you. But draw near with a true heart. That means genuine. You know, Israel was castigated for honoring God with their lips and having a heart far from Him. So sincerity is not merely to impress other people. It's not merely to fix my problems. It's frankly admitting my struggles. You know, come before, you come before God and speak boldly. Do you know the areas, or do you realize He knows the areas you're struggling in? Do you know that He's ordained it so that Christian growth is a part of life, even for the most holy saints? Do you know that God already knows you're not today what you should be tomorrow? Don't let that keep you out. Sincerity and perfection are not the same. In full assurance of faith. That's not talking about an amount so much, but an object. And that's not presumption. It's expecting God to be everything He says He is and do everything He says He's going to do. Having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's the inward change. Only those who really belong to Christ can come boldly into His presence. That's how the guilt of a defiled conscience is removed. Bodies washed with pure water. Remember before the priests could serve, they had to come to the labor, they had to wash their hands, they had to wash their feet. Why? That was a picture of ongoing defilement. Remember at the Last Supper, the Lord says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter says, Lord, not just my feet, but my head and my hands. He says, you're clean. You just need your feet washed. Meaning, I've changed the heart, but walking through this defiled world, you need ongoing cleansing. So, that's a picture of uh, ongoing confession of sin. So, the four ways to groom yourself to come into His presence. Sincerity. Confidence in who He is. Having been truly saved. Confessing sin as you go. Number two, verse 23, let us hold fast. Hold fast, cling to. Let us cling to the profession of our faith in Christ without bending or buckling. That's what that means. Now this is not saying it's up to you to keep yourself saved. He's saying cling to the profession of it, the outward confession primarily before the world. Don't let the problems, don't let the struggles, don't let the doubts kowtow you into silence where you won't be a light for Christ. Cling fast to the profession of your faith in Christ without bending or buckling or wavering. I mean, the believers here in this book were tempted to throw in the towel largely because of persecution. Now listen, if you really want to walk with God, you're not going to escape Satan trying to sift you as wheat. It's going to happen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you in here have been a Christian for five years or more? And you know full well. You've had times you doubt it all. You doubt God loves you. You doubt there's any sincere people in the earth. You doubt God's still working through the church. You doubt it's even worth it being a Christian. You doubt it's worth it to stand for righteousness? Most of you know what I'm talking about. Listen, that is a part of the warfare we face. 
But he's saying in those trials, listen, you don't need that admonition when everything makes sense. When you need it is when you're in total blackness. But here's the one light you have. Who God is. Who Christ is. And who I am in Christ. That's your light. And he's saying you see that and you grab hold of that. You can't see anything else. You grab hold of that. And you hang on to it. And God's going to bring you out the other side. He always does. Remember, that's the experience of Romans 5. One of the proofs you belong to Him. I mean, what makes us so ready to tuck tail and run back? The perspective of eternity becomes cloudy, forgotten, minimized. We allow some of the fiery thought darts of the wicked one to stick to the side of our ship and fester. There's unconfessed sin that's shorn us of spiritual power like Samson's hair coming off. Not feeding in the Word consistently. Maybe getting up in the morning and staring at the feeding trough. Not really partaking. Lots of other reasons. But he's saying because the blood of Christ has been spilled on your behalf, don't collapse, don't quit, don't throw in the towel. Cling to the truth. Number three, let us consider one another. Verse 24. The word consider means to perceive clearly. Why do we meet together? There's a lot of reasons. A lot of good reasons, a lot of biblical reasons, not just one. And by the way, this is the context of verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And look at the reason given. We are to consider to clearly perceive one another to provoke unto love and to good works. This is not just talking about hearing me stand here with this. You know one of the wonderful things about people staying behind to visit after church services? Don't stop. It's a healthy thing. But here's what part of that should be. Part of what we're called to do because of the blood of Christ is to consider each other, to perceive each other clearly, and to light a fire under each other to... Love, God's kind of love, charity, and to good works. Part of the effect of fellowship, getting together a lot of the effect, here's what it should be. To increase our collective spiritual temperature. Let's say we take ten charcoal briquettes and we space them out in a circle. We take the temperature. Now take those ten and put them together and take the temperature. You think it's going to be higher? Church meetings, part of them are to be charcoal briquettes coming together to raise the temperature, raise the spiritual heat. And friends, listen. Part of that is going to be challenging each other when we're wrong in areas. We've been in Romans 14 recently. And we're going to be there for a little bit. And I'm telling you, I honestly, I tell you truly, I beg God to give us a right perception of that passage. 
that on one hand we would know the difference between making a big issue out of minors and having a wrong spirit. But listen, on the other side of this, as the age progresses, when people view the church as some social club, six flags over Jesus, I like to be around those people. I feel judged. Listen, that could indicate a problem. It also could indicate somebody who doesn't like the temperature being turned up on their life. Both of those can happen. And we need to be able to sort out the difference between the two. One of the things I hope God does here is increase our discernment, our ability to consider each other. Raise the temperature. Uh, who's communion for? Well, it's an individual thing, yes, but the whole word communion, koinonia, closeness, fellowship, yes, that's with Christ ultimately, but you don't just partake of this as an individual. You partake of this as part of the collective body of Christ, as one coal, one brick in God's building. So what responses should considering this blood of Christ produce? A drawing near. This is a reminder that the veil's gone. That the Shekinah glory cloud fully inhabits the temple, which is you if you belong to Christ. You may grieve Him. You might be aware of areas you're grieving Him now. What can I tell you? He's not going anywhere. Not being full of the Holy Spirit is not a matter of wanting more of Him. It's, more of, it's Him getting more of you. So, this should remind us to draw near, to press into the veil. It should remind us to hold fast, to tighten your grip on the promises of God. Somebody says, well, I, man, it feels like I'm in a barren wasteland right now. It's the best time to cling to the slender thread of the blood of Jesus. Consider one another. Build each other up. Well, let's close with prayer and then I'll have Roger and Eric come as we partake of this together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your ongoing mercy, cleansing. And Father, even the greatest of churches so-called is so pathetically frail, vulnerable, susceptible. Help us to see, Lord, it's not by might nor by power, but by Thy Spirit. This is Your assembly. These are Your people. This is Your work, Your bride, Your building, Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.